Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, Tahiti's Court of Appeal announced a politician's corruption conviction. Also, we are still standing and the future looks promising. This year's Cook Islands budget is a win for people on the minimum wage. And later on... 40% of completed aid projects in recent years been assessed as unsatisfactory. Australia's aid projects from the previous years wasn't up to scratch. French Polynesia's pro-independence leader, Oscar Tamaru, has a clean record again after the appeal court in Tahiti annulled his 2019 conviction in the criminal court. He'd been found guilty of exerting undue influence over the way local station Radio Tefana was funded by the town of Fa'a'a, where he's been the mayor for decades. Now, all involved have been exonerated in a ruling gaining a wide echo. Koroi Hawkins spoke with senior RNZ Pacific reporter Walter Zweifel about the case and asked him what the allegations had been. The allegations based on the spending of the town of Fa'a, where Oscar Temaru has been mayor for decades, that that money spent on providing an office or premises for Radio Tifana amounted to undue influence. That means that this was money spent that benefited his uh, Tavini Huiratira party, i.e. abused public funds for personal benefit. That was the accusation. As a result of that, he was given in 2019 a six-month suspended prison sentence and also fined 50,000 US dollars. The court also convicted back then the chairs of the board of the association which runs the radio, that's Heinui Lekai and Vito Mama Toyahutapo and uh, they've been also given suspended jail sentences in addition, the radio station as a sort of a judicial person was fined one million US dollars, uh, a sum that was of course uh, impossible for this radio station to pay at the time when this conviction was uh, being handed down. It was suggested by one of these chairs that it would have been easier to just blow up the station instead of having a trial. What was, what's been the reaction to the acquittal? Well, Oscar Tamaro said that he wasn't surprised because uh, he thought that uh, he was was always dealing with the truth um, and he also said he wished that the country finally had justice with a capital J. Uh, there was also effusive reaction of part of the lawyers and he's got a, had a very strong team of lawyers including uh, David Kubi from France and Kubi is, is well known because he was involved in the trials that had to do with uh, Strauss-Kahn back in France. He was also a lawyer for Curviel who was that, that finance person in Singapore that brought down the system for a little while there. So uh, Kubi thought that it was um, uh, an extraordinary outcome. Uh, he said that uh, there was a sort of like uh, ill intention there to, to, to soil or damage Mr. Temaru's reputation. Uh, he said Oscar Temaru had been convicted uh, only in a case that was rigged. That's how he put it. David Kubi also said that the prosecution could never really prove what they were alleging, that it was a propaganda station. There was no recording ever of anything that could be construed as being propaganda. And we have to keep in mind, this is a radio station open to the community. People from all walks of life could participate in broadcasts. So it was at the time when 
nuclear tests were controversial, at least they were raised, but it was a station that was open to all sides uh, doing, you know, general journalism. So it, it wasn't, uh, it couldn't be construed that it was uh, a situation where there was propaganda. Uh, when it comes to the financing of it, of course, there are also opposition members in the council. Uh, the council approved this funding. It's probably questionable whether they want to continue with this model in case it could be challenged again. Justice with a capital J. What did Oscar Timaru mean? There seems to be uh, quite some tension in French Polynesia with the justice system in the sense that rulings are you know, unusual or surprising. At the same time, they are binding. We also keep in mind the justice system is run by France. It's not a, a local system. For example, in part of this appeal process that Oscar Temaru had launched, the prosecution went after uh, Mr. Temaru personally, saying that it wasn't shouldn't be the council in fact that paid for uh, lawyers' fees and. Uh, 100,000 US dollars of Mr. Temaru's private savings were seized. That money has not been returned yet. So at the time when this money was seized a couple of years ago, Oscar Temaru launched a hunger strike. Uh, It was then considered that the case was so controversial with the seizure that it could not be ruled or decided in French Polynesia. It was deferred to New Caledonia. It hasn't been resolved there yet. But Going back to this feeling about how this justice system works, um, when Oscar Temaru back in 2004 was elected president, it came as a shock because the system was set up in a way that he shouldn't be able to win with an electoral system that was geared towards the Tahirahu Iratira party. And after the election, it was immediately said by the French overseas minister that the election is not over, although it had been over. And lo and behold, it didn't take long. Then a case was mounted against Oscar Temaru saying the election in Tahiti was not valid because the curtains in Mahina at the polling booth in Mahina were blue. That was the color of the party of uh, Oscar Temaru and uh, as a consequence that result was annulled and there had to be fresh elections then there, of course there was also a motion of no confidence uh, in this intervening time when when one of the Tavini politicians was coaxed to switch sides uh, that in itself a very controversial event the motion that then was presented in the assembly uh, it turned out later on was signed only by six people. For it to be valid, it would have been signed by 12 people. The court then ruled the motion was valid because the intention was there to, to have it presented. But then, uh, of course, commentators said, well, this means uh, six equals 12. The other side, of course, has also issues with the judicial system. Uh, Gaston Floss, long-time rival of Mr. Temaro, also accuses France of using the judiciary to try to annihilate his career. We have to keep in mind that uh, Gaston Floss has got several convictions for corruption. Uh, he's been banned from politics since 2014. But in the bigger context, it, to note is that Oscar Temaro has a clean record. He's the only president of the last 30 years in French Polynesia who has not had a conviction for corruption like uh, uh, Gaston Floss or Edward Fritsch or Gaston Tongsan. Money has been set aside in the Cook Islands' 2023 budgets for caregivers and people on minimum wage to get a pay rise. The budget has been approved by Cabinet and is now with the Public Accounts Committee for review. Any recommendations will need to be approved by Prime Minister and Finance Minister Mark Brown before it's debated and accepted. 
Caleb Fotheringham has more. The minimum wage will increase from $8.50 New Zealand dollars an hour to $9 on the 1st of July. The caregiver's allowance, which goes to people looking after elderly or people with a disability, will increase from $200 per month to $300 and again to $400 in July 2024. Prime Minister Mark Brown told members of Parliament last week the support was important with the cost of living increasing. Just as plants rely on each other for support and nutrients, individuals in a nation must support and uplift each other to thrive and flourish. Brown says inflation has been the highest the country has ever experienced at 12.1% from March last year to 2023. Over that same period, he says food prices increased by 20%. According to the Asian Development Bank, the Cook Islands' GDP shrunk by nearly 30% in 2021 due to its borders shutting during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the Prime Minister says it was predicted to grow by 12% in the 2024 financial year and continue its upward trend in 2025. While our country has been through a great trial with one of the largest falls in GDP in the world, we are still standing and the future looks promising. The Cook Islands Tourism Industry Council president is pleased the government also wants to make it easier for people to travel to Rarotonga from countries other than New Zealand. The budget set aside about $15 million over three years to support contracts with airlines beyond New Zealand. Liana Scott, who also owns the Muri Beach Club Hotel, says access to other ports made the country less dependent. Previously, our eggs were all literally <laughs> one basket from a tourism standpoint where every person arriving into the country all had to go through Auckland. She's also pleased to see the minimum wage increasing, saying it will help the high cost of living. Although that doesn't really affect businesses too much because most pay over the minimum rates anyway, I think it's still a good minimum standpoint. In Parliament, Brown thanked New Zealand for its assistance with the COVID-19 response. Their significant contribution of $21.4 million in budgetary support this year alone and an overall support of $107 million over the last four years has been a cornerstone of our economic recovery. Brown also thanked China, Japan, Australia and the Asian Development Bank. Last week, New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins announced $15 million to the Cook Islands to support the ongoing recovery from the pandemic. The budget will be debated in Parliament on the 19th of June and will come into effect on the 1st of July. Internal research by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade shows that 40% of its completed aid projects in 2021 to 2022 were found to be unsatisfactory. This is a significant increase on the previous period analysed, which may be due to improvements in the measurement processes. The Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University has been assessing the figures and says they are concerning. Terence Wood told Don Wiseman there has to be some serious and considered reappraisal of projects. 40% of completed aid projects in recent years have been assessed as unsatisfactory. Their assessments of their ongoing aid projects are more positive. It's concerning, certainly. I don't think it can be read as suggesting that all aid, Australian aid fails to achieve any good. 
but certainly quite a significant number of Australian aid projects right now are failing to live up to expectation. In terms of that, how is that defined? How is dissatisfaction defined in this case? Basically, like, have they achieved the outputs and outcomes that they have expected? So something could still be unsatisfactory, but have achieved something, delivered some good, but it just hasn't lived up to expectations. Yes, so it could be 90% satisfied, for instance. Yes, although given the nature of self-appraisal, I suspect people in DFAT would probably be happy to, uh, to call something that was 90% satisfactory, satisfactory. Armed with this information, what should DFAT be doing with it? They really need to engage in some serious and considered reappraisal of projects which haven't been performing well. And some of that appraisal could be sort of quantitative or statistical. They could look at sectors, try and identify sectors where aid has been underperforming or parts of the world, which is something we've already done for them. We know that it doesn't perform as effectively in the Pacific, for example. And then some of it should be more qualitative and based on looking at individual projects very carefully, maybe looking at a group of individual projects and trying to get a good sense of what it might be that's causing those projects to underperform. We know that Australia is providing less money for aid than perhaps it has at stages in the past, percentage-wise. But it's still an enormous amount of money. So when you've got a 40% unfavorability or a 40% unsatisfactory level, you're talking about a lot of money potentially having been wasted, aren't you? We do have to put it in context, though. Uh, less than 1% of Australian federal government spending is devoted to foreign aid. So compared to the amount of money that Australia spends on all things during a year, the amount of money that it gives to aid, and I suppose the, the subset of that uh, amount of money which is going to aid projects which are underperforming is pretty small compared to overall Australian government spending. So it's not as if the Australian government is squandering vast sums of money on inadequate aid projects at present. However, then again, compared to relatively measly amount of money that the Australian government devotes to foreign aid, it is worrying that quite a significant number of projects are underperforming, certainly. And when we think about the countries of the Pacific, for example, countries which are really quite dependent on Australian aid, it is a worry and it does suggest that Australia really needs to up its game in this area. Do we know of areas where there have been failures and the reasons why there have been these failures? In our report, in the concluding section of the report, we actually list some of the um, larger unsatisfactory investments However, from our position outside of the aid program, it would be very hard to sort of speak you through the specifics of any individual failure. What you really need to do is speak to DFAT or get a hold of a detailed evaluation of a project which is underperformed. And, and then from that information, you might be able to get a better sense of what's gone wrong. I noticed one here was education in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Australian aid spending on education in Papua New Guinea didn't perform particularly well. And that's a worry, of course, given that Australia's investment in education in Papua New Guinea is significant and important to Papua New Guinea. On the other hand, it's not wholly unexpected, given that Papua New Guinea is a pretty troubled country right now, and governance in Papua New Guinea is pretty poor which means that any sort of engagement in, in a large endeavour such as trying to strengthen the school system in Papua New Guinea is always going to be difficult. OK, so how does the Australian aid programme improve its performance? Right, so they need 
to do several things. First, they need to invest. Let's just focus on the Pacific for a second here, which is the most difficult part of the world that Australia spend a lot of aid in. They need to really focus on carefully learning the context of the countries in the region and really carefully tailoring their aid to make it as suitable as possible to the, those country contexts. Then they need to invest a lot more in high-quality evaluations of their own aid projects so that in addition to simple numbers, which rate whether projects are satisfactory or not, they can get some real detailed information about why projects are succeeding or failing. And then they also need to invest in their own staff expertise. They need more aid workers. Right now, too much of Australian aid has been managed by diplomats. need many more specialist aid workers in the aid program, people who are capable of taking on board tricky projects and making them succeed. There are plenty of those people around? Yes, definitely. They had a large number of very skilled aid workers back in the AusAid days, just when they got rid of their aid program and integrated it into DFAT, they lost quite a lot of that skill. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, Fafitai Tele Lava, Tofa Soifua.